All right, everyone. Um, good afternoon, San Diego time and in all of the other time zones now. So Sarah Barker with Connect Our Elders. And today is our second Empowering Aging virtual event. I am incredibly grateful for all of the support, for all of you guys registering, and especially grateful for the expert educators that I have with us today. Connect Our Elders and these Empowering Aging events is all about getting education about elder care resources and options out to the consumers, whether that be the referral sources in our communities, the elders themselves, and their adult children, their neighbors, right? Because that's the thing with the type of work that we do, it touches everybody. Everybody has grandparents, everybody has parents, everybody has neighbors, clients, and patients, okay? So, I feel that there is a significant gap when it comes to proactive education. And by the time that families get to us, they are incredibly overwhelmed and incredibly stressed. So what can we do to help reduce that? It starts with education. And that's what these events are designed to do. And the hope is when the time comes, they are already aware of the resources that will support them. And they can make proactive decisions so that way they feel more in control of who they're bringing into their life and what they're going to implement. So they can be alleviated from the overwhelming stress to really focus on the things that are important, especially at that point in life, which are their familial relationships, their friendships, and simply enjoying life, whether that's sitting in the grass, smelling daisies or eating as much chocolate. It doesn't matter. But proactive education allows them to focus on what's most important to them when the time comes. So thank you so much for being here today. And we are going to go ahead and turn it over to Hannah Ruse for her presentation. Thank you so much, Hannah. Absolutely. I'm just really excited to talk with you all. Um, so just a little bit of background, because I think like Sarah I've just had pretty much a lifelong passion. So um, I come from a long line of family caregivers. Um, when I was 13, I was given a great aunt. that <laughs> I helped out every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday after school. When I turned 15, I became an activity assistant in a nursing home in what was called the sundowners ward. So I was there from five to 10 to really help, you know, those folks with dementia to really help um, the nursing staff and kind of be that activity assistant. Went to school to become a social worker, was a very typical case manager, um, both for the state as well as some national partners doing just all over the board, um, aging care management and case management. Saw a need very early on for exactly what Sarah's talking about, which was you know, we have families either coming after a crisis and having very little knowledge, making decisions that were either really poor financial or healthcare or whatever decisions because they were in a crisis um, and just not having the tools available to them. So I started a company um, gosh, 12 years ago called Concierge Care. That was a group of RNs and social workers who across the country helped families coordinate care. I sold that. It still exists today under a different name um, because I really wanted to continue 
finding out how do we grow within this sphere. I spent a few years in the technology side of the post-acute world, um, just really another way to understand kind of how, how is everyone talking, right? How are hospitals talking to home care agencies? How are hospices getting their information through discharge? Um, and so really that has led me to my position now, which, you know, I will, you'll see a little bit of on my slide. I promise this isn't, um, you know, a commercial in any way. I really just want to make sure I connect and help folks understand one, what value-based care is, what value-based primary care is, especially as we continue to have these growths of Medicare Advantage plans, um, confusion around those, those plans, but to really know that at the end of the day, value-based care is here to stay. Um, what it is, how I feel like individuals can really utilize what's out there, what is a very growing industry and be able to use healthcare proactively and use it kind of in its full intended purpose. So that's where um, that leads me today. So I really look forward to continuing to network and, and to get to know each one of you because very much so in this world, um, you know, being able to be strong partners and advocates for aging individuals that we might be helping, but also to connect us as professionals, because <laughs> that's one of the most important parts here is just being able to be strongly connected. So I do have three slides. I'm not a slide heavy person, but some of what I'm going kind of through, I think just makes sense for, for you all to see it. So let me know if you can see my first slide. Um, I don't know if anyone can speak up that they can see it. I just want to make sure sometimes my computer's being funny. Yes, ma'am. We can see <laughs> okay. it. Awesome. So um, really, you know, speaking from behalf of value-based care around the intended purpose. So, you know, I'm going to start from and, and talk maybe more basically than probably a lot of you have education, but I thought it would just help to kind of get that that basis. So Medicare for many, many years has run from a fee for service model, which was exactly that a service was provided and there was a set fee for that. And so, you know, the provider, whether that was a hospital or a physician or an organization that was providing some sort of health care, um, they provided, you know, they got that fee for each service that was provided. Um, you know, there was a move for Medicare to develop what that pricing would be. But what really happened was you had a very heavy push to have as many services as you could for someone who is aging. Um, that didn't necessarily mean a bad thing. I think a lot of a lot of diagnostic pieces were were done during this time that were very helpful. But what happened was is obviously, um, those individuals that were getting paid were very heavy on how many services can we provide. And so the, me, the move from fee-for-service, especially around practitioners, um, into value-based care meant that value-based care is, is really that it's based upon an outcome. So there are outcomes that the payers, the insurance companies, have set standards for, and really the biggest ones are outcomes of care. How do we make sure that value-based care 
is doing two things. It's being as preventative as possible. It's being super articulate around chronic care. So we know that many of our aging individuals, um, you know, I saw some different statistics. I don't want to quote them here, but we know in the last 15 years, individuals make it to 65, 70 years old with several conditions, right? Um, some of those are are chronic and, and high needs. Some of those are just, you know, diabetes, high blood pressure, plus another disease that are not going to put them in any kind of, um, you know, high acuity care. Are we ready? Those are those kind of moved together pieces. And so what VBC does is it really says, let's pay attention to kind of the wholeness of an individual. Let's work on outcomes, especially behavioral outcomes and health outcomes. Let's also not use um, inappropriate levels of care. So this is where you've heard about, you know, bounce back rates from emergency rooms and things like that. They want individuals to be going to their primary care doctor first. That primary care doctor really acts as a quarterback of care, is really the coordinator of care, and then, you know, is aligned with all the specialists and all the needs and that we absolutely use emergent care. We absolutely use hospital care when necessary, but not emergency care as just a drop in for another level of care that they didn't get. What we saw many times before value-based care was emergency care was being used because a primary care physician wasn't taking on kind of that role as a quarterback or the individual didn't have a primary care physician because they felt like I'm seeing a cardiologist. I'm seeing a neurologist. Why do I need to kind of add another doctor to this? Not realizing that they were all running into their own um, silos and for sure, feel free to speak up. I'm super interactive. So ask questions or give feedback while we're talking here for sure. So I want to talk a little bit about why it's different. So the measure of success is really around, like I said, those healthcare outcomes. So again, the payment is tied into what we call kind of a risk-based model. So it looks like the providers, the payers, anyone involved with that patient who is, who is getting a value-based care payment, they are really sharing the risk. They're saying, we are going to actively be involved in them being as healthy as they can be. Um, we're going to do things like have health coaches involved. We're going to actively work on, you know, smoking ces- cessation or if they need to, you know, better get their diabetes under control. We're also going to work on those social determinants of health. So we're going to talk about, do you have food? Can you easily get transportation? All of those pieces that we're now seeing before Medicare, especially Medicare Advantage plans or or traditional Medicare was not involved in anything except for health care, right? And now we're starting to see those plans, especially the Medicare Advantage plans, start to have services like transportation like uh, food delivery or food services, um, a lot of behavioral health services, health coaching, all of those things. So that really lends towards that VBC piece. And so 
um, you know, for any value-based primary care provider, not just Iora One Medical, where, where I'm at, they're looking at that whole patient. They're saying, okay, we need to understand how to coordinate this care. And that's a word I think we'll continue to hear. And that's really why we're here today, right? It's how do we coordinate all these levels of, of home care and how do we coordinate different levels of services and solutions so that no one's working by themselves and we're not passing along that information. Um, the other piece that was really important around VBC and that growth, as you can imagine, when outcomes are important, it means you have to have the data, right? You have to have to have the data and the metrics. So as you can imagine, having the tools to be able to do that is, is also very important. So that's where you're going to see the push for anybody who's involved in value-based care to have high interoperability and whether that's their EMR or their billing system, um, you know, being able to connect directly to CMS to send those, those billing sheets and those re reconciliation sheets. So technology plays a big part in this um, because otherwise you just can't have three or four individuals working with someone and then having a pay, which is essentially CMS, and then the other payers, of course, being the Medicare plans, Medicare Advantage plans, the supplement plans, things like that, um, determining if the outcome works if we're not sending that information back and forth. So I think that's also important because that does mean that for some organizations, that's mean that they've had to kind of level up in what they can provide from a technology perspective. Um, it definitely means that, you know, timely notes, timely billing statements, um, you know, care notes, all of those things are now a, a big focus of someone's care instead of a diagnostic code in, in a billing sheet. It's really more about how are you showing where maybe someone came into care and how you're involved in that. So really in the VBC model, um, you know, it's the healthcare provider, it's the patient, and it's the payer who are the stakeholders in, in this. And so that really makes it a little bit different. Um, you know, the, like I said, the differences between that and fee-for-service are exactly that. We're going away from how many touches or how many services we can provide for someone, as opposed to now kind of a more holistic um, expectation for that individual. The other side of this is we're really talking about that, that idea of quality of care, not quantity of care. And I'm sure this resonates with everybody in this room, right? And I think that this is an important step that we're just talking about it at least, that it's, and it's tied into healthcare, that we're really saying someone's quality of life is, is of utmost importance. Um, and it's really determined by what they want that quality of life to be. Um, and how do we help facilitate that? How can we have those metrics um, that someone is doing well and is healthy? How can we have those involved in their day-to-day -day living? Um, and then let's see if I've got, I've got one more slide here. Let's see if it will go for it. If not, that's all right. <laughs> um, so I wanted to talk about kind of have an interactive piece, which is, you know, how can we continue as professionals to help families, one, understand, you know, and I don't want to get into too much around um, 
you know, what's available in their Medicare plan and all that. I think there's time for that. And, you know, I think we can, I can put Sarah in touch with some other professionals to kind of talk about what's available in the plan, especially with AEP coming up, but really how can we, because again, with, with value-based care, knowing that the primary care provider is that center of the healthcare, they're the, the healthcare quarterback, whatever you want to talk about, um, you know, I really wanted to brainstorm because especially most of the individuals here, you guys are either mm-hmm. providers in other levels of care or providers in the community. Um, how can we help get that understanding with families about how this is such an important part, both of care, but also how it is a fully paid for benefit, right? Every part of wellness through value-based care is highly paid. It's, you know, it's benefits that they don't have to extend additional dollars for. This is something that already comes in their plan. How can we make sure that more individuals in the community are utilizing value-based care, understanding it? Is it just education? Um, You know, is it partnering with individuals like yourselves? I know that's a big one for me. How can we get to the other folks in the community and be those partners because especially in value-based primary care, we're the individuals referring to home care, DME, all those other services. And we want to be able to do that in a comprehensive, cohesive space, and then vice versa, be able to open those doors. So I just kind of throw that out to that group of, of how can we do this? And you know, please let me know what questions you have. I'm, I'm just super passionate about those individuals really being able to access all the services and all the healthcare that's available to them. Hannah, we do have a question from the lovely Patty Gerke here in San Diego. Uh, she focuses on, on real estate for seniors. Awesome. Um, so her question is, how do you find this type of healthcare provider in various parts of the country? Yeah, so that's a great question. So there's, there's a few ways you can go around with this. So my hope is that we kind of turn how someone gets to care on its head. Right now, what's typically happening is during AEP, right? So October 15th to December 7th, (laughs) individuals are out there shopping for plans. And it's, I mean, it's tough for any of us. Any of us who are shopping plans, even our employer, it's very difficult, right? Nevertheless, a senior who's probably doing this by phone, sometimes or in person, they're comparing all these plans. My hope is that they they go after the provider first. And so it's really as easy as going into even Google and putting in value-based care, primary care providers. So, you know, and we're all kind of very tight in this world. So I'll tell you, you know, the largest providers of care right now. So I'm part of Iora Health One Medical. There's ChenMed. Um, there is Oak Street, there's Centerwell, there's so many providers in this space. And I will tell you something you'll find out about us. We are not competitive at all because what we're really competing against are individuals either going through their traditional primary care and not getting what they need because value-based primary care, all they see are seniors over 65, individuals who are on Medicare because they were disabled or or vets. That's it. So you have someone who, you know, when they write a test or they write a prescription, they know if it's going to be covered because that's all they literally work with, 
right? That's all they do. So even just kind of Googling who's available to you, but typically it's finding out through your plan. So right now, how someone does that is they look in either their original Medicare or their MA plan, and they literally either go online or they can call the number on the back and they can say, I'm interested in getting a VBC provider. And they will give you the list of who's in your area, who takes your plan so that it's fully covered and all of those pieces. Does that help kind of answer your question? Yes, it does. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Any other questions or insight that you guys have? Okay. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I look forward to connecting with all of you for sure. Thank you so much, Hannah. Um, okay, so up next we have Melody Lynch, who's going to be talking about when is it time to start consider finding a care solution? And we all know that typically by the time somebody is sent to us, they probably should have been sent to us far sooner. So I'm very excited to hear this presentation and Melody, the floor is yours. Oh, let me take you off mute. Sorry about that. I've been working in the healthcare industry for about 20 years and have an undergraduate degree in healthcare administration and a master's in gerontology. I started out working directly on the front line. Um, and so I became very inspired throughout my career um, after seeing a lot of the problems uh, that older adults face um, in the delivery of care through a variety of methods and modes to develop um, a service that addressed all of those issues. Um, those issues obviously have continued to evolve, especially during uh, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Um, so, so one of the most challenging pieces is figuring out when someone needs care um, for family members because they don't necessarily have um, experience or education in, in the clinical world. Um, so there are specific things that they can look for like unexplained bruises, a decline in their loved one's hygiene, weight loss, um, changes in their mood and behavior, increased clutter in the home, um, inadequate food supply or proper nutrition. Um, they can look through their loved one's refrigerator and look for old or expired or accumulating items. Um, they, if their loved one isn't moving around the home frequently, oftentimes um, when someone is declining, they're not participating in a lot of activities and they're sitting, just sitting in a chair or sofa uh, for long periods of time. Um, there also might be signs and symptoms of sadness or loneliness. And that is another really important aspect of health that is often overlooked for older adults. Um, so those are, those are very important. Um, there are specific diagnoses that we look at when working with older adults that need intensive management, um, like with dementia, um, congestive heart failure, um, people that are fall risk often need 24 hour care. There's a lot of new technology resources out there to help manage or partner with, um, home service providers. Um, you can do, you can utilize um, services that provide case management or a place for mom, um, care patrol, elder works, 
all of those organizations can help you navigate um, care uh, that's a little bit more in depth and provides you with people that have experience or boots on the ground um, rather than just utilizing the internet to search for um, services. Um, you can create sort of a list with pros and cons um, for the different types of services that are available to you. Um, and it also includes, you know, weighing the personality traits or preferences of the older adult that is seeking the services, whether they're an introvert or extrovert. Um, do they, do they, um, do, are they, pos can they be positively impacted by the environment, by moving to a different environment? Um, or will it negatively impact them? Oftentimes we can see that happen either either way, you know, where someone moves to a facility and it boosts everything for them. Um, and then other people, it can cause them to have a premature death because they're so devastated over the loss of their home and, and separation from all the things that really matter to them. Mm -hmm. um, there are a bunch of red flags that you can look for when looking for care providers or going through that process. Um, language barriers and communication are some of the biggest things that impact um, the delivery of care, um, whatever method you, or mode you choose to receive care in. Um, you, if you're choosing facilities, um, unanswered call lights, staffing ratios, all of those things are really important. Um, that is something that we've seen a tremendous uh, problem with, especially during the pandemic. Everyone across the board has faced issues in terms of staffing, but we've been hired um, to help a lot of people in facilities because of um, them being so short-staffed. Um, mm -hmm. I think that pretty much covers it. I will also provide a link um, to our website that provides a comprehensive article of all the all the things to consider um, when weighing options for your loved one. I really appreciate that melody. I'm offering something for people to, to reference, not only the professionals here today, um, but the families that will watch this recording. So my question is, you know, when should we, and when should the adult children or friends of people start having these very real and vulnerable conversations with those that they care about? I think, I th well, there's certain things like the things that I mentioned before, when you start noticing small things that might open the door to have some of these conversations, but also um, with diagnoses, when you start to see a list of, of multiple chronic conditions as a profession, as a health professional, you know, sort of the trajectory of those disease processes. And so when you start to see a growing, I need to say this, but when you start to see a growing medication list or a growing list of conditions, it's, it, they were, the probability of them needing care is, is much higher. Mm -hmm. Do you, in your opinion, and I welcome anybody to answer this. Um, my opinion is, and I'll speak from a home care perspective, that many times maybe the home care agency gets put in touch, right? Because something happened, but then it doesn't go anywhere. And I feel like, you know, you can talk about the services, but also for the purpose of, you know, growing your business, you know, effectively follow up with your prospective clients. But 
I find that the adult children are so in need of coaching in this area, coaching around how to approach it with mom or dad, right? And so if anybody would like to share any insight or advice or, or you, Melody, right, on how they can approach these conversations. They're, they are incredibly challenging and, and it's oftentimes a compromise or collaboration between the older adult, because again, you know, people have rights and no is no is no. Um, but you know, that's where, you know, informed consent is, is really important to help them see what the benefits and, and risks are for them and let them choose, um, and not, um, take away that, that sort of empower them through the process instead of um, taking charge and control. Um, If the person feels that they are making the decision themselves, they're more likely to comply with the the goals. And again, developing the goal, helping them identify their goals can help with that plan. Mm -hmm. And in your end of life doula work, um, you know, some friends I've talked to people that have gone through the the credentialing to be an end-of-life doula, what I've heard is people that are even in their 30s or 40s should go through this experience because it really helps them define what they want their later years to be. So they're already making the decision so they can communicate it to their loved ones. Um, and with that said, too, you know, maybe start educating your referral sources on how to bring these topics up before there's even a need, right? And so, and start educating people that you come in contact with on how they can bring these topics up. So that way they can proactively talk to their loved ones about it. What do you want? You know, do you want to stay in your home? Do Would you want to go to an assisted living community? So on and so forth. Yeah, and I feel like I see a lot of families that, they sort of ping pong back and forth between, you know, the family members sort of avoiding the decision and they'll say, I want this and that, or I want to live in a facility and then I, or I'd rather stay at home because they're just sort of flailing, avoiding having to deal with the fact that they've declined. So I cannot stress enough the amount of psychological support that's needed for both the older adult and the family members as they go through this process. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's very difficult. There's a, a huge aspect of denial and grieving um, through, through this process for a variety of reasons. And the role reversal often that, that is felt. We do have a, a comment um, for you. So Suzanne, I can't see the whole last name, Suzanne C., I am living this right now, getting them to agree with anything. You start with small, simple suggestions, always give them options and let them know they are still in control. My sister and I oversee our parents' care, but do not overstep our boundaries. It is not always an easy balance. Mm -hmm. It's so true. That's wonderful. Are there any questions for, for Melody? Okay. Thank you so much for being here and being an expert educator. All right, let's turn it over to Errol Sayan, who is going to be talking about long-term care benefits for wartime veterans and their surviving widows. 
And I'm especially excited for this presentation because he does have this one um, success story and I'm sure that's just one of many. Thank you for having me. <clears throat> I'm gonna start out <clears throat> with um, my background. I, I was in the military myself. I'm what they call a uh, Vietnam era veteran because I never went to Vietnam, but I happened to be in the military when the war was kind of winding down. My first story I want to share is I spent, okay, well, first, the difference between Vietnam veterans and Vietnam era is a big difference. Guys that were in Vietnam were praying every day to get home. A lot of my friends were in Vietnam. Guys like myself, when the war was winding down, I was in the Far East. I was in Okinawa. I never wanted, I stayed there for 20 years. It was, it was a, a great experience. I loved it. And then I spent three years in Germany and there I met a man. And you're going to think, you're going to think of me. <laughs> this guy must've been dumb as a post. This is going back to the 1980s. My friend was, had been a helicopter pilot in Vietnam. And of course, he'd seen a lot of action. And he also was a presidential pilot. So he was one of a group of Americans and German friends that I hung around with. This is in the biggest American community outside the United States, which is Kaiserslautern, West Germany. And my friend Ben he, he, was, he was actually a presidential pilot. So Ronald Reagan was president. Nancy Reagan was first lady. You might recall Nancy Reagan was a big advocate for Alzheimer's um, education. And so Ben was, it looked like Ben had it made. But Ben had an experience that we didn't understand. Ben, ben flew congressmen into Guyana which I don't know if you realize was, this was right after a mass suicide. These were the, this is where the expression drinking the Kool-Aid comes from, the Jim Jones and whatever cult he was involved with. And that experience caused my friend, um, we didn't, it was invisible to all his friends. We didn't know what he was going through. So that, all we knew was that Ben, was playing golf with the chief of staff, General Alexander Haig. He was, um, you know, friends with the president. And um, he had 15 years as an Air Force officer. So he, he pretty much, we thought, had it made. But he gave up his career in the Air Force. His family, uh, his wife, and he got divorced. And we just thought that he was not very smart. We did not understand anything about PTSD. Okay. So <clears throat> I bring that story up <clears throat> for a couple of reasons because most of the things that I deal with, well, there's actually three separate things that I deal with. Veterans, <clears throat> excuse me, widows, and the overworked caregiver that takes care of the veteran and the widows. And I'm dealing with veterans of three different wars. The Vietnam War is the youngest group. Their age is 65 to 75. The Korean War veterans 
are just about all over the age of 86. And World War II veterans are, are pretty much over the age of 94. I mean, there's only one in 50 World War II veterans. One out of 50, less than 2% of them are still living. But there's still plenty of them around, and they're widows. In fact, I deal with a lot more World War II widows than I do veterans. So, but the, 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 the segue I want to make is that the caregivers that I deal with are often going to have the same post-traumatic stress issues that a combat veteran will have. In fact, that uh, it's been, uh, there are studies about this. So, and, and by the way, I'm gonna, <clears throat> this is like, like a, I'm gonna just give you some of the symptoms of PTSD. Like to get, vet, to, to make a claim for PTSD for, for service-connected veterans, someone at 30% service connection would have symptoms such as depressed mood, anxiety, suspiciousness, panic attacks, chronic sleep impairment, mild memory loss. This is, I mean, I just about, uh, I would say quite a number of the caregivers that we deal with are, are have these symptoms, you know. Now, <clears throat> quick story about like right now, I've, I've been dealing with two caregivers that have these symptoms and more. One of them had been a what taking care of her father. She had been a public coroner in her career. She's in her 60s, her, her dad in his 80s. <clears throat> now, I could not last five minutes as a public coroner. I'm, I'm very certain of that. But those, those experiences added to this, the stress of taking care of her dad just drove her over the edge. Uh, in fact, she exhibited some of the symptoms that we would say would be a higher than, like, like for, for service-connected disabilities, she would be things like um, um, near-continuous depression. Uh, this would be 70% in difficulty in dealing with any stress, panic attacks, rage issues, that kind of thing. So what I found is that kind of simplify, maybe oversimplifying is that we'll, we'll have caregivers that are, that are having those symptoms, and then we'll have some caregivers that are just totally numb. The, the best analogy I've ever heard, I, I've, I've been doing this for 11 years now, the best analogy I ever heard was from a home care um, uh, individual, this is about 10 years ago, and he told me, this is like a California analogy, a caregiver is like a, a, a they're, they're like on a surfboard. Out, on, out in the ocean, and they're, and they're trying to balance themselves, and they keep drifting and further and further out to sea, and we're trying to call to them, come back, we're trying to, um, you know, hey, it's, it's not safe, but they can't hear you, you know, they, they can't, they can't um, 
see the signs of what's going on. So, and I found that to be very true, that we're, we're trying to communicate and some, and that's part of the problem that they can't, they become in some sense, to, to some extent, irrational. So I want to segue from my experiences with my friend almost 40 years ago, recent caregiver experiences, and talk about today, yesterday, okay? The big news for veterans, John, I don't know if you heard this, John Stewart, who I think could be a model for any of us that advocate for anybody, was very successful in advocating for veterans who were exposed to burn pits while on duty in the Middle East. And so uh, hats off to him. And I hope all, you know, we're all inspired by that. And so what, what, what we deal with are sometimes the super elderly. I recently did a claim for a widow age 106. And, and the oldest living person I've ever talked to, by the way, she was still able to hold a good conversation. And it kind of, <laughs> the point of this is how come <laughs> we didn't do this claim 10 years ago? I mean, to do a claim for what we call aid and attendance, the person must need help with at least one or maybe two activities of daily living. I'm pretty certain she needed that help 10 years ago, but nobody asked her the two main questions I wanna get across to you today, which are very simple. Was your husband a veteran? It's one question. And the other question, of course, you know, were you a veteran? Errol? May yeah. I interject for one second? So she learned about it through you and nobody had ever spoken to her about it before. But let's even back up a bit. How come nobody at the VA or nobody as he was going through his journey of aging, right, ever even talked to him about aid and attendance and the other resources at the VA? I've had World War II clients and Korean War clients who saw combat, right? Who had never even filed for disability with the VA, let alone aid in attendance when they needed help paying for care. Right, good, good question, a great question. So first off, I have to distinguish, VA healthcare is totally different from the VA pension side. And many of the great, there's some great people in VA healthcare, but most of them do not know anything about the pension side. So, so when we're talking about veterans, yeah, even though they might go to the VA healthcare, they may not know much about, about how to file a claim. 95% of claims are what we call service connected. So aid and attendance are only 5% of claims. So, for example, all the people that help veterans with service-connected claims, like the county veterans offices or the service organizations such as the American Legion, the VFW, Disabled Veterans of America, Vietnam Veterans of America, they're all focused on service-connected disability. None of them really pay attention to long-term care. And I have a great list here, which I can send to anybody, and I 
it's, it's from the American Academy of Nursing. This is a series of questions. It's only a page and a half. It's actually mandatory in the state of Connecticut that care providers ask these questions to uncover like service-connected disability. Like for example, um, were you wounded while on active duty, injured, hospitalized? Or it could be like military sexual trauma. Were you, um, were you in, was that part of your military experience? Or it could have been nightmares. So these are questions to un uncover and they're great questions. It's a great, I think if you've never really dealt with veterans, this simple two page uh, thing that they put together is great, but there's nothing on it about long-term care. <laughs> so, so basically, you know, people don't get that kind of input. They don't get it from the VA healthcare system. They don't get it from the service organizations. So it's, it's, um, so what, what I want to, the main point of my presentation is to simply ask people, like there's a pretty good chance if somebody, if you're dealing with a man or woman over the age of 94, that they were in World War II. Why do I say that? Well, 15, excuse me, um, one third of the men over the age of 15 during World War II were in World War II one-third of all males. <laughs> so, so there's a good chance, or if you're dealing with an elderly woman, let's say she may be age 90, for example, the simple question is, was your husband a veteran? And I think that if there's one takeaway, it would be to, women are the last to learn about this, widows. And I have an article which I can also provide. It's a great article on widowhood. It's by a lady named Marilyn Murray Willison, who is an, uh, an author, and she runs a blog. Shout out to her. Uh, it's called Self-Empowered Woman Blog. And she has received awards for her books, uh, One Woman, Four Decades, Eight Wishes. And here's, here's one of my takeaways. In this article, she says that widows typically over the age of 65, widows in America over the age of 65, two thirds of them are living in, uh, excuse me, two thirds of Americans over the age of 65 that are living in poverty are women. So if you're taking a look at the poverty levels, most of them are widows. So the biggest impact that a VA aid and attendance claim is going to have on someone is a low-income woman, okay? That is because we can get that person $1,300 a month. And many, I've dealt with many widows whose only income is <clears throat> a small social security of 1000 a month, for example. So, so you will have a, if you ask a 90 year old that question, was your husband a veteran, your late husband, you will have a John Stewart effect on her life because that benefit can really make um, 
So you could hire a home care company mm -hmm. with that with that kind of income. Sue, so, there was a question, Errol. So, so there's a person, a participant. Um, I will ensure that everybody gets the documents that he's talking about. Um, but Suzanne said that she's attempted to help a client's wife whose husband was a World War II vet. They were told to go to the local VFW in Manassas, but they couldn't mm -hmm. get any help. So, like, yeah. what are these families to do when they keep hitting roadblocks and maybe these other organizations aren't helping them, but they want to see if they meet the criteria, right, for the aid in attendance? And how can they go about getting it executed if they do qualify. I know that there's, you know, vet assists and there's these other uh, types of um, resources, but what what can she do to help this couple navigate well, this? Yeah, I'm always going to give people like an, a, a free evaluation. You know, how does it work? Um, the, main, the main point of uh, aid and attendance is it's a reimbursement for care person has to be paying for care. And there's a lot of little details that go into it. So I'm always happy. The organization you mentioned is a good organization, uh, Vet Assist, uh, Patriot Angels, one of my competitors, a very good organization, um, Tennessee. And, and um, I'm, you know, these are federal benefits. We can, I'm happy to talk to somebody in Manassas. We can help them with a claim in Manassas. I'll be I'll be in Virginia later this month for my mother-in-law's 90th birthday. So mm -hmm. not far from Manassas. So um so this is a um like education is part of it, but most people, most veterans have never heard of it. Like even the service organizations and, and the county veterans, they're all focused on service connection, and which there's a lot of details, there's a lot of knowledge that goes into service connection. And this is technically called non-service connected disability. And th But three quarters of all veterans did serve in wartime. Not all of them, but three quarters. And I mean, and that's why they actually put widows of wartime veterans ahead of the peacetime veterans. There are guys that serve that can't get this benefit, but the widows, that's the big difference. That's why I say there's a difference between like Vietnam era veterans and, and you know, there's a big difference between serving in wartime. Now, you don't have to be in the battle. You just had to be on active duty during mm -hmm. wartime because if you were, they could have put you in the, in the battle. Yeah. So what is the criteria? Um, two questions. What is the criteria that must be met mm -hmm. to receive aid and attendance? And then who will process the claim? You will process that, process that claim. And what are some other organizations that, that can help these families get the claim processed? Yeah, so first off, um, there are organizations like myself, um, Patriot Angels, Bet Assist. Um, there are attorneys that do this. Now, there used to be Prior to 2018, a lot more attorneys were involved, but there are still attorneys like locally. I know uh, several attorneys in California that can help people. Technically, I mean, you can do the claim yourself. It's just not, uh, it's not easy. Let's put it that. It's just kind of, you know, there's mm -hmm. a lot of tiny, there's a hundred different tiny details that go into it. So mm -hmm. um, now 
the 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 main points are the like the first part of your question the medical part is when a person's own doctor says you need a helping hand it'd be safer to have a helping hand with activities of daily living the financial part is assets have to be homes are exempt but other assets have to be under 138,000 the savings they put that rule into effect in 2018. Okay. Uh, prior and to what that, are the benefits? So they qualify, right? They qualify and the claim gets processed. What exactly is the, the benefit? So, so the, 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 but here's the thing. They got to be paying for care. The, the biggest problem, like I'll run across people that try to get the benefit and I know right away, usually they didn't realize that they have to be paying for care, either assisted living or in-home care. So it's going to be, and it has to be documented. And they have to be doing the kind of care the doctor says is necessary. So basically, the VA looks at a person's income. And if it's all going for care, a veteran will get this year, the maximum is $2,050 a month. For a widow, it's $1,318 a month. It's the maximum, we call it reimbursement for care. Mm -hmm. So, And this is an ongoing requirement. you got to be paying for care. Otherwise, VA wants to stop the benefit. Is there a certain amount of time that they have to prove that they've been paying for care? I mean, is it six months? Is it 30 days? Is it, is it two days? Well, at least a month, you know, at okay. least a month. And so uh, that's really like if if anybody that has a problem with their claim, that's my first thought, you know, is are you are you are you proving that you're paying for care? And is the caregiver uh, uh, acknowledge signing off that they're doing the care? See, that's 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 the the heart of the claim. See, because. This is, I mean, it's an amazing benefit. It's kind of like having long-term care insurance. The veteran's service paid for that. And so it makes possible care when people really need it, you know. Mm -hmm. Is there a link? So there's a comment. I'm wondering if there's a link for application for care. So starting the process that, that you could share in the comments. Well, um, let me let me just tell you what, basically goes into it. And then um, anybody that, like, I will always, if, I will always explain to people how, how this works and I can send them the information very easily by email. Mm -hmm. But what basically when I talk to someone, it's going to be the documents that are needed, military discharge, copy of it. And I have put together links for social workers on my website. I can send these are the most handy links for any social worker to deal with VA. So I've got links like getting, if you don't have the military discharge, how to get it. If you've never enrolled in VA healthcare, here's the form and here's how you do it. And for aid and attendance, you know, uh, my link. But the very first form would be an intent to file that starts a start date because benefits may take three, four months to start, but it's retroactive. So the documents are going to be military discharge for a widow, death certificate, marriage certificate, copy of the bank statement, 
Um, there's going to be copies of the 1099s for pension, social security letter, and then proving that someone's paying for care. So, and of course, the doctor form. So, most of the claims, by the time you're done with it, it'll be 30 or 40 pages. It, it's not that it's that complicated, but I think the biggest mistake, let's say, that people make is not realizing that how VA determines how much money you'll get is they compare the, the income, the gross income to what goes out for care and other medical expenses. But mainly it's going to be how much did you pay the home care company? How much do you pay in the, for assisted living? Medicare premiums, you know, health care supplement, you know, Medicare supplement. Those are medical expenses. So you, you kind of have to offset your income with medical expenses. Do they have to show, because that's the catch-22, it always has yeah. been, is that they have to already be paying for care. Correct. But if they can afford to pay for care, they probably right. wouldn't need the benefit, right? And that's where a lot of people get stuck. So, you Correct. know, when they are providing the proof to the VA that they're already paying for care, do they need to show proof that they're paying a caregiving agency or an assisted living, or, or could it be that they do have um, their daughter providing the care, right? And and then yeah, okay. and that suffices. Yeah, the, the, there can be a family caregiver. I mean, generally, everybody will, either, it'll either be a family caregiver, a home care company, or an assisted living, or a board and care. So, but yeah, it, it, you're right to say that it's a little bit of a catch-22. Because we'll run across people, well, maybe their only income is $1,500 a month, and they got $1,500 worth of bills. So how do they do that? How do they pay for care? So sometimes, like if there's a little bit of room in the budget, we'll start with a small amount. And then once that benefit starts, they can increase it. You know, you can submit, okay, now I've increased my home care. Like recently, I did one for a man that, has a very small income. He's a, a Korean War veteran, 90 years old. His in, only income was 1300 a month. Well, because his income is so low, he, he was, the difference between the $2,000 benefit and his income gave him a pension of about $660 a month. So then he started paying a home care company. So essentially, by the time he's done, he will be paying all his income to a home care company, but getting two thousand a month from VA. So, if you can picture, like his only income is thirteen hundred initially, with no care. Now he's already getting about six hundred from VA. He's using that for a home care company, and once that increases his pension, stage three will be he needs a lot of care. So, stage three will be. And he doesn't have a, a son or daughter, so it'll all be home care company. And but it, it makes total sense because by him spending his thirteen hundred, he gets two thousand from VA. So and he gets all the care that they provide. So got it, got it. Makes, that makes sense. Yeah. So, but sometimes the only option is like if they have a son or daughter. Yeah, you can start that way. I mean, uh, because you can do that, and 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 um, and then we run into the problem, you know, like we we've, we've had people that their 
they do their best, but then they have to make a transition, which is fine. Because as you know, the caregiver gets overwhelmed. And mm -hmm. um, so, mm -hmm. so Absolutely. I mean, what, what I hope to be the main takeaway is that this is really not well known to the veterans or the widows, especially the widows. So simply by asking that question, was your husband a veteran? Like if you're in the home, you might see a flag in a triangular case. Well, that's a, that's a veteran's widow for sure. You know, uh, but you know, you many, I mean, World War II veterans will wear a hat, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. World War II veteran, but I've never seen a widow I'm a World War II. You know, you have to ask this person. I would suggest if you yeah. don't already have it part of your intake process, regardless of what your profession is in the senior care industry, that you just add it to your intake process. You should always be asking the question. Are you a veteran? Yes or no. Have you applied for this? Have you not? Are you a surviving spouse? And then you can explain to them what that means. And it should just be a systematic part of your intake process. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, the people will always be grateful that they just found out about the benefit. Mm -hmm. I mean, because it's it's a let's say it's a hidden benefit. Um, they, they, I, you know, often the county office will not even talk about it. County veterans office that are mm -hmm. every county in America. Mm -hmm. So it is a hidden benefit. And I think you're right that um, there's no downside to letting people know that this is possible. Definitely. Thank you so much, Errol. Appreciate really appreciate your time. Um, let's turn it over to Arnie Fonseca. We're going to talk about fall risks, preventing falls so you can stay independent. Arnie, the floor is yours. All right. Well, thanks, guys. and appreciate everybody what you guys do. Um, you know, um, my, my job is to keep people independent and, and with as much autonomy as they can possibly preserve for as long as possible. And, you know, I've been doing this since the since the 80s. And uh, back then it was uh, 55 was considered old. So um, at least for myself, I, I'm considered an old person now. But um, regardless, that led me into uh, really about everything you could possibly imagine with, with these folks uh, from joint replacements back then to heart conditions, neurological things, strokes, everything you can imagine which uh, I was able to actually did a lot of work in physical therapy, owned a couple of clinics, uh, neurologically based, did a lot of stuff with traumatic brain injuries, um, spinal cord injuries, stroke, you name it, anything neurological that would just freak most people out. Um, I've seen it and work with it and developed a lot of strategies along the way. But one of the main things that I focus on today and have always done is how do we keep these folks uh, independent? How do we, you know, people have been doing fall risk programs for, for years. Uh, as an exercise physiologist, um, I like to strategize and come up with simple plans. And, and this is why, and for anybody that's online, here's a, here's a program I developed in 1992. It's a DVD. But if you get a hold of me, I'll send you a free copy. And uh, that way you can have it. It's one of those programs that people look at it even today and they go, oh, I can do that. Because you have to have a place to start. 
And, um, and that's the, the problem a lot of times with a lot of physical therapy programs. And that's an area that I know a lot about because I helped develop some of those. And in, in my, what I try to do is simplify them because a lot of times they complicate them. And, and as we get in our seventies, eighties and nineties, which was my specialty area over 90, people just won't do that. They won't. I mean, I would have people show me gobs of papers in their drawers of exercises they were supposed to do, but never did. So I try to make things very simple. So, but to, to kind of back up a little bit, for me, what I've seen over the last 35, 36 years is that it was more important for people to be stronger versus endurance. They both are important, but as we get older, it's more important to be stronger because that allows us to do things to remain independent, those activities of daily living, all the other things that we wanna do, you know, bending over, putting on your shoes, picking up things, taking care of walking the dog, whatever it might be, remaining independent is more important. Strength is more important in those areas than being able to walk five times around the block. Again, both are important, but you have to prioritize and building strength is super important. And here's the neat thing, uh, because when I first started in, in the 80s, it wasn't it wasn't a fact, but it is today. We will and can build strength until the day they put dirt on top of you. Anybody, I don't care how old you are. I've, I've worked with people over 100. Everybody got stronger if they moved. Everyone. I've never worked with one person in 36, 37 years now that didn't get stronger. And, and I don't care where they were starting from, whether it was a traumatic spinal cord injury or a stroke, it didn't matter. If they moved, they got stronger. And that's a really neat thing uh, to, to really have in your back pocket. And then it's, because really my goal is to bulletproof. How can I bulletproof these individuals from falls? Because so you, so you, so you work from the bottom up. Well, what happens if you fall? Well, you break things. So I have clients now in their 70s, we work on things to strengthen their bones. Like I have them it takes time. We work up to jumping off of boxes. We jump. We build bone density because people fall. We all fall. And if you can fall and not break things, you will remain independent. But if you break things, you've just almost signed away everything you've ever worked for because it's very difficult the older we get to recover from fall, from a break. So I see a hip. And so one of my goals for individuals is to let's strengthen those bones. Let's get you really super strong. I've got individuals that are doing some just crazy things uh, in their 70s and 80s. And it's fun to watch them because I want to I want to be I want to run into me when I'm in my 80s. That's my goal, because I want to remain as independent as possible. And it, it is possible if we remain healthy and, and we do the things that we need to do to, to be independent and and, and preserve as much of our autonomy as possible. That way we're making our, we're calling our own shots. And, you know, we don't know because neurological things do happen, especially in our late sixties, when we start to develop, you know, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and other different things that do dementia creeps in. But again, there's things we can do in that area and there's not nearly enough time to discuss that here. But it, it, the idea is remaining is to bulletproof those things, those uh, our body from what could happen from falling, um, the real key to my program is, is not the, so much getting off the ground. It's the idea of how to slow down, how to stop, and how to change directions. 
because just like a professional athlete, those are the things that create severe injuries, ACL problems, hamstring tears for an older person or anybody, just an average person in general, those are the things that cause them the most problems. They can't slow down, they can't stop, and they certainly can't change directions. Those are the things that get them off balance. Those are the things that tear muscles. Those are the things that rip tendons and ligaments. And those are the things that cause us just an ungodly amount of pain, agony, and the recovery for those things is long. Just for a professional athlete, it's long. Can you imagine if you're 80 or 90 years old? It's almost impossible. So we want to prevent those things by learning. But I, I, have, I have a system for all these things. So, so learning how to slow down, stop, and change direction is key to, to uh, fall prevention. Key. It really is. And then you combine that with being stronger. Now you've got ways to, to uh, maybe hold yourself up. Or if, you're, if, if you've done the work, because I've had a lot of individuals that have done the work and they fall and guess what? They can get up or they can get up with minimal assist and they don't break anything. And that's kind of a neat thing. It gives them peace of mind, peace of mind that they can be independent. They have options to do what they want to do and not being told what they're by their kids or neighbors or things that they need to do, you know, basically in their mind, act old. And they don't want to act old. They want to be independent. And this drives a lot of people crazy as well, this this certain, this mindset. But at the same time, it's the uniqueness of what I teach. And a lot of people crave it. They just don't know who's because most look, I've been around physical therapy programs, tons of them. They're not going to do this kind of stuff because of uh, fear of liability and all these other things. But when somebody hires me or comes to work with me, they eat that up because they want to remain independent and they, and they will fight for it and they will do just about anything they can if it's physically possible. But again, that that's my responsibility as a professional and having done this for this long and I have systems in place and I've worked with hundreds, if not thousands of individuals and have seen results time and time again. So, Arnie, what are some types of exercises that family members could work with their aging loved ones to do? How about standing up out of a chair? Okay. That's that's pretty, that's number one. How about walking backwards? Actually, walking backwards is number one. But if you can't walk, then get standing up out of a chair. Okay. And, and around like, because I'll take my grandmother, for example, yeah. right? Nobody was encouraging her. And, and mm-hmm. frankly, I wasn't in the industry yet, yeah. Yeah. but nobody was really visiting her a lot either. And so mm-hmm. she basically became a part of her lazy boy chair. That's right. And then it became very difficult for her to start doing things. And so, you know, when should these suggestions start being made? Well, uh, now, to the people that we know. What's well, kind of like the analogy. When was Sarah, when's the best time to plant a tree? <laughs> now. <laughs> 25 years ago. And do you have any tips on 25 years ago? Yes, that's good. So the second best time is now. Mm-hmm. And and do you so I remember my grandmother, because even though my uncle would be like, you know, Ma, you gotta get out. You really need to start walking. Yeah, She's like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But like work. What are some good ways that adult children can 
approach this in a loving, respectful way with their parents about you know, the importance of exercise. It's interesting because that's kind of my area of expertise. And I'll, I'll share a quick story because I don't want to suck up too much time here because I've got things to do too. But uh, my mother-in-law, who's in her mid-80s, a couple of years ago, I was driving home. Uh, my wife and I were away for the weekend and her and her sister were on the phone talking about well, mom's losing it. Mom's this, mom's that. And, you know, all these things. And she's actually in this, in this DVD. And, and I'm, after she was all done, I just sat there and listened. I said, Hey, look, do you want me to go over there and talk to your mom? And they, she goes, sure. So I went over there the next day. I sat down with her and I said, you know, I talked, see, here's the thing. When I talk to an 80 year old or 90 year old or anybody, I talk to them like they're my friend. That's number one. And I said, what's going on? And, and she just started, wow, you know, da, 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 and I go, you know what? You can do this. But I already know certain little things, Sarah, that I can get them to do, like standing up, turning, turn in different directions, simple things. Walk backwards. If I can get somebody who's 90 years old to take two or three steps backwards, because I already know they can. What do you think that does for their mindset? Mm. Mm, powerful. And then they're willing to try big things. And of course, I'm standing right there. So I'm not gonna let anything happen to them. But at the same time, I'm, I want them to believe that it's them, they're doing it because they are. And I want them to build up that confidence in themselves. And, and I call it hand in glove. And I learned this in neuro, because see, I had a son who was who was working for me 20 some years ago, he, he's since passed. He from a traumatic brain injury, but um, but it's okay. It's part of the story. But here's the thing, because I was already doing this for 10, 15 years before that. But here's the thing. I call it hand in glove. And this is very important for any of you that are working with a parent or a loved one or anybody like that, because nobody wants this. And this is what you get in physical therapy. Sarah, I want you to do this and I want you to do that. And I want you to do this. That doesn't work. And I would train my staff not to do that, but it's very hard because that's what they're, that's what they've learned to do. So hand in glove is this, it's all about empathy. So I'm going to come up behind my client. I'm going to see the world from their point of view, like my mother-in-law, what was she seeing? What was she hearing? And I may not agree with anything she says, guys, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to say, Hey, look, what do you think about this? What about this? I, if she come, if it's her idea, we're in. But if I tell her what to do, because that's what her two daughters were doing. How did that work? Not very good. And, you know, three years later, she's still independent, living at home, taking care of her husband. Mm -hmm. Three years ago, they wanted to put her away. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that this is how it works. But it takes it takes a. Um, we can call it a professional touch. I'll talk it more of experience, but remember your family's problems are not emotional to me. Okay. Mine are, my family problems are emotional to me. Her mother was not an emotional thing for me. It really wasn't. My parents had already passed away. If it was my mom and dad, I couldn't even tell my mom's doctor what to do without my brother and sister jumping all over me. You get it? So her mom, it was easy because it wasn't emotional to me. Her daughters couldn't do it, Sarah, because it was too emotional for them. So if you can do it in an empathetic way, seeing their point of view, it has to be from their view of the world, not yours. 
because your worldview is safe. I want you to be safe, mom. I want to wrap you in bubble wrap and put you over here in the corner and let you out of the bubble wrap every once in a while so you can go do something. And that's how they feel. And I'm being very, I'm, I'm exaggerating that point because I talk to these people all the time. And this is the kind of stuff I hear and it drives them crazy. I think the other aspect to that too is the role reversal, right? So when it is the adult child telling, or even if they try to take the empathetic approach, you know, they're still embedded in the parent's mind. I'm the parent. Yeah, it's really hard. I'll I'll share one more quick anecdote because this happened just two days ago with my coach. And if you, any of you have watched, I think I might have had a couple of his videos on the Elder Care Network. He's an 81-year-old gentleman. He's really overcome a lot. And his son, who's kind of like a little brother to me, a couple of years younger than me, drives me crazy. But he literally sat down with me while I was doing some work the other day. And he started to complain about dad again. And I just sat there and listened to him for about 20 minutes. And then I said, you know, I said a, a few other things too, but I said, I put my hands together. I go, this is where we're starting from. You have an 81-year-old father who's healthy. He loves coming to the gym. He loves interacting with people at the gym. And that's it. But he wanted him to be Mr. This and that, this and that. Clean his bathroom, do this and that. That's important stuff. But guess what? That's a pretty good place to start. Why don't we just acknowledge that? But see, adult children don't like that. Because it doesn't punch all the, it doesn't fill in all the, uh, the, 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 the marks on the board, you know, because, and that's why I want people to think about this, because I've been working with older people for 37 years. And I, I just want everybody to understand when they get to be 80 or 90, how are they going to be? I hope they remember this kind of stuff, because I, there's a good chance they're not going to be like that. They're going to, they want to think they would. Oh, yeah, I'm going to be just like that. Mm, maybe, maybe not. Okay. Uh, uh, Arnie, hey, uh, Arnie. Yeah. You, you mentioned um, like your your friend that likes he likes going to the gym. I just wanted to share. Um, my wife doesn't like going to the gym. Right. So most don't. We most go, don't. We go for walks, and I just purchased. I don't know if you ever heard of this. Something called Nordic poles. Nordic and what? Nordic poles. They're oh like, yeah, they're walking like, poles. Yeah. 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 They're real popular in Europe, sure. but it simulates skiing. Yep. And my wife likes it. <laughs> she just tried it last Beautiful. night. We just got these. And so when we walk, I mean, you can get a pretty good workout with that yeah. or what we call like heavy hands, you know, which yeah. is like. Heavy I carry hands like are a little more complicated. I you know, yeah. yeah, but I, I it's helped me. And, no, and, no, well, and, you, well, you understand yeah. it, so you're good. Yeah, but I, I think it's so great. I mean, speaking as a somewhat older person, because I am 70, <laughs> you know, that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, I, I agree 100%. Like, that's one of my biggest focuses of the day is to get some activity in. Movement. Uh, Movement. Because I sit around doing, I'm on the phone and in paperwork all, all day. And I have. Let me tell you something with those poles with your wife. Try this because yeah. you're there with her. Yeah. Have her try walking backwards with those. Okay. <laughs> I'm, no, I'm very serious. Sure. Once, I, this is important. This is the nugget takeaway for everybody here. One step backwards is worth 10 steps forward. Really? I have people that come work with me every day. I don't even let them walk back forward until I feel they're ready. 
even if we're walking from one piece of equipment to the next, we walk backwards because oh. I want, I, we don't do anything that causes pain. And the first thing they look at me is like, I'm crazy. The second thing they say is, wow, it doesn't hurt when I walk backwards. Darn right, it doesn't. And then I had a guy who's brand new in my program, 10 days. He walked a mile backwards yesterday and he was like ecstatic. And I go, listen to me, that's worth 10 miles going. And you can Google it. This is real science and it works. And you will help not only prevent knee pain, but you will stabilize the hips of your folks that you're working with. You will put things in alignment so it'll prevent back pain. You will do wonders for your loved ones if, if you will do things like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I was wondering um, what the benefit of walking backwards was. Oh, so and now I understand it alleviates the joint pain. It's a whole I seminar. Yeah. That, and, and I think too, Arnie, so, you know, right, people can work with you or if the adult children are going yeah. to encourage their aging loved ones, but uh, caregiving agencies, when that's, you know, they want that as part of the care plan. Is yeah, that- I've done, and Sarah, I've done workshops for, for retirement centers, uh, caregiving agencies, and with, with Zoom now, we can do virtual stuff and we can do, I've got a whole workshop uh, handbook and everything ready to go. So um, which, with the whole virtual thing, I've had to kind of do some some switching around, but it's, it's I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm figuring it all out. So, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's, uh, I think it's valuable guys. I mean, look, part of the, look with the, with the low, um, um, we want to keep, if we get clients into our program, we want to keep them there. Right. And falling and losing people is not a smart thing. Okay. So we want to keep them healthy and active in our programs as well. I'm talking to caregivers all the time and activity directors all the time. I go, wouldn't it be nice not to have to chase around 10% of the people and maybe expand the pie a little bit of people that will have a little more energy, a little more vibrancy in your program. It makes your job a lot more fun. But, and we <laughs> got to keep them, keep them healthy. Hey, it's a lot easier to get a renewal of a current client than have to go out and find new clients all the time. Well, so absolutely, and have a better aging experience. Yes, exactly. Yes, better aging and, and Give them something to work for and, and give them a feeling of accomplishment. You know, that's so big because most people don't come out of their rooms to go to these places, guys. Mm-hmm. They don't. Mm-hmm. Well, even, um, you know, through experience, even if the family members want basic exercises to be a part of the care plan, Oftentimes, you know, the the caregivers, even from an agency, aren't really sure what to do no. um, or don't know how to approach. Well, that's why I said if anybody's interested, they can message me. We'll make arrangements to get this. This is the simplest thing on the planet. I've, it, every time I've, I've had people call me 20 years later and say, wow, you're the guy that did this. They, they're, they're surprised I'm still alive. So um, <laughs> um, but it, it because it was so simple. I actually had people years and years ago said, no, this is too easy. And I'd look around and go, I don't see anybody here in your exercise program. Because I was <laughs> I was thinking because I wanted to make it so simple that mm-hmm. anybody could do it. Please send me um, the information on that or I'll make yeah. sure that yeah. we Absolutely. that. Thank you so much, Arnie. So what we're going to do, we had a sponsor for this event, um, Valerie and Carl Ryder, the founders of um, Home Care Matters, an independent non-franchise agency in Georgia, but also of Home Care Quote. So I do want to give them a few minutes to talk about Home Care Quote because 
the benefits of it are not just for the caregiving agency. It really benefits the clients on service to ensuring that they are receiving the appropriate level of care. So um, go ahead, Val. Thanks, Sarah. We appreciate it. Um, like Sarah said, I have uh, two home care agencies in Georgia, uh, one in the metro Atlanta area and one south of the Atlanta area down near Macon. Um, and Carl is a special advisor to Home Care Matters, been working in that position for about eight years now, comes from a corporate background of logistics. So one of the things that we were challenged with, especially during COVID, was, um, you know, how how are we going to bring value to our home care clients and how could we better serve them? And there was a lot of different things. Education has always been a challenge. Uh, for the industry and the people that need to know it most are usually in denial about what that looks like and especially about their parents. And then the parents take a an obstinate look at it and say, you know, you're not going to tell me what to do. So here are people that are, you know, on medications with diagnosis, kind of going downhill, afraid of what's happening. They've lost a lot of their ability to pay their bills and go shopping and, you know, the big one, the driving. All right. Can you guys hear me? So appreciate the uh, opportunity, Sarah. Um, we own two agencies here in uh, in Georgia, one in Atlanta area and one down south in Macon. And uh, we developed Home Care Quote based on some of the needs that we found uh, that were um, needed in our home care agencies and, and then quickly found out that other people were struggling with some of the same uh, issues that we were. Um, and education is is a big factor in that. So the tool that we've developed as a technology tool um, is uh, I'm going to let Carl kind of go through it. We're not really going to share any videos, but or, or slides, but just basically talk to you about what what the tool does and how it's helped us in in our particular markets. You want to go ahead? Thank you, Valerie. Yeah. Again, my name is Carl Ryder, and um, I've been working in the home care industry about seven years. My consulting company, the Ryder Group. And as Val said, we created this project uh, about two years ago. And really, as a neighbor for the uh, home care agencies we have here in Georgia, we have two of them, one located just outside Gainesville, Georgia, and the other one located south around the Macon area. And really, we, the tool was really built as an educational tool for clients. And it's a tool that creates a custom URL that's embedded on your website, or you can have a computer uh, for when you engage with clients directly on the phone that walks them through a five-step process, onboarding process, if you will, finding information about the individual, where they live, their uh, conditions that, that need to be addressed and cared for, uh, the environment that the care is being provided in. Um, also, then we get into a little bit more specifics about the individual and some of their interests so that when we introduce the caregiver or what we like to call care professional into the relationship, there's a little bit of knowledge and awareness between both parties and they can start working on developing that special relationship between caregiver and client. We summarize everything at the very end of it. And then we uh, basically push a button and the algorithms go to work. 
and it produces a PDF for the agency of all the information that was just captured, as well as sets pricing based upon the levels of service that are being provided to the client. Uh, it also, at the same time, puts together a, a graphical depiction, a, gra a pie graph of, of the level of care all the way from independent to high acute uh, requirements. And then a communication is then sent to the client and they can see a little bit more about summarizing what the relationship or the discussion was all about. And it's incredibly helpful to educate because when you go through it with a client or when they do it themselves, we build it so it could be done without the, uh, without the staff member being involved. Um, we create a lot of hover and definitions of what the care and the needs are because a lot of folks don't know uh, the vernacular of the industry. So you folks mostly would, but a lot of folks don't. So this helps take some of the edge off, helps create the increase of the educational process and starts describing why uh, the services are what they are and why they cost what they cost. And they can understand that from a budgetary standpoint, but also a understanding of what kind of care is being provided for their loved one. Uh, again, it produces a PDF that's very comprehensive. And then that PDF can be used in many different ways. My personal experience going through it with my family, uh, if I'd have had something like this, a brother in San Francisco, sister in New Jersey, and I'm in Atlanta, Georgia, it would have been something that would have helped the, um, the family members kind of see and understand, which sometimes you don't really understand a lot of the care needs of your loved one, especially if you're remote and you only see them on maybe special holidays and things of that nature. So it really would have been a very powerful tool on a personal level for, for myself if we had had it. So that's kind of uh, a little bit of backdrop. There's so much involved in it. We have a lot of detail on our website, homecarequote.com. Uh, you can also visit Valerie's uh, agency, homecarematters.com, and you can actually see the tool that she's in, embedded in her business processes to help create a better, more professional, educational, and helpful experience for her clients. Mm -hmm. uh, it takes it takes the uh, process and makes it abstract for the consumer and gives them something very real to read and look at. And they've answered the question. So they get a very good sense of, wow, they really can't get up by themselves. They aren't able to ambulate. They do have some income issues. And it takes it from from that level to a very detailed uh, base care plan that then we can go in and educate our care pro. She knows what's expected when she gets there. And it makes the whole transition uh, very transparent. It's a very dynamic model. And it's a very, very educational for both uh, the uh, agency, because if you have new staff coming in and out, they can go walk through the tool and learn that vernacular. And then for the consumer, as they go through it and understand what is involved in home care. Mm -hmm. And it further professionalizes the home care industry. Um, you know, if, if anything the pandemic did that, I guess, if you find a positive, is that it cast the spotlight, right, mm -hmm. on the, the home care industry, right? And so it further professionalizes the experience that the family is having. Um, it will help you more deeply partner, especially with your legal financial referral sources, because that's the way they think in reports and, you know, these diagrams and whatnot. Um, but I think there's a reassessment application too. Uh, oftentimes caregiving agencies will bring on a client and let's say it starts out as a companionship case. 
And yes, the agency recognizes that the needs are increasing, maybe the increased hours and the caregivers are having to do more hands-on care, but it's really difficult to go back to the family sometimes and be able to justify with substantiating documentation you know, a price increase. And oftentimes the agencies are not, number one, doing the price increase, um, but there's having to pay the caregiver more, let's say, um, or the family just can't wrap their head around it. And so their loved one doesn't get the increased level of care that they need. And so it, it's a tool that addresses so many different areas, really with a focus on appropriately caring with the client, the aging one, at a higher level, but also really protecting that caregiver to make sure that they're going to be compensated adequately for the increased level of care that they're being required to provide. Yeah. That's a very good summary there. Yeah, yeah. actually, on the, and just to add to that um, uh, reassessment. So obviously in Georgia, we're a regulated state and every 90 days we have to do that. So we really have built it in a way that you do a quote, you do a reassessment, it gets added on so you have a lifetime visibility of the care and the progression of the care uh, with each client. All that is stored in a, in a cloud, um, protected and HIPAA compliant and whatnot. But it's, uh, it is a way for you to be able to sit down with the family and, and watch the progression of the, uh, the care required for their loved one. Mm -hmm. So someone asked, yeah, someone asked about ClearCare, which is the software uh, tool that we use, the home care scheduling tool. And, and, a lot of what we use, we designed from the intake perspective, some of the uh, clear care assessment tools, which, you know, are, are available in a lot of software scheduling uh, so, uh, tools. But what we did was we individualized. It's not a general tool. It's very specific. It's customized to your agency and it produces a price. Uh, the clear care uh, tool does not produce a price and it does not, it's not you can you can do it uh, in general. You know, some people might need incontinent care. Some people not might not. But so this is specific for that case. You don't even see that on our base care plan. I mean, if it, if somebody says they're incontinent, you'll see it. If a next client comes in they're not incontinent, you won't see that on there. So it addresses specific needs for for individuals every single case because they're all different. So it's and, and at the end it produ it produces a uh, a, a price. It also gives you a care spectrum where that person is. And then it gives you recommendations based on that care spectrum where the majority of the care is needed, whether it's acute care or notable care or independent care, how many hours the agency recommends that somebody be with that. If you're not going to have us at, you know, maybe less for six hours a day, who's with that person the other 18 hours? Because as we know, dementia is not a six hour a day diagnosis. It's 24 seven. So if somebody is not there, a professional agency, a family member, or, you know, somebody needs to be with that person because there are a lot of things that can happen with when they're left alone. So mm -hmm. it there there's a it's a it's it's not just a an assess it's not just it's not a clear care tool, but it 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 can be used in association with clear care. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely, it, it's. Definitely different, but that's an excellent question. Um, are there any other uh, questions for Val and Carl? Uh, Carl, is that is that a tool that um, a, a consumer can just use, or do you subscribe to a service? Or yes, so so it's in um, it's it is a it's a subscription service. It's a SaaS based model. Um, it is uh, embedded on the agency's website. 
And we have, you could go to an agency that is a subscriber and the family member could do the quote, all right, for, themselves for independently. And then what we'll do is it would generate, and, it would, and we would have that, be able to pass that as a referral to someone who may not already be a, uh, a member of our, our of our platform. But Errol, I think, so I think, yeah, I think so. Let's say um, it, when Errol is dealing with families and they want to have an idea of what their needs are, can they just go to the Home Care Quote website and self-submit or get, you know, do a quote and then it could be blasted out to whatever agency is where they live? Yeah, that's, what, that's part of our referral process. But what we do is we capture the referral information first and then we would put them through the process. We have to find out what geography they're in to be able to let the uh, the pricings for those markets and so forth apply the, through the algorithms. Yeah, there's a wide there's a wide range of pricing depending on the market. That's part of the country that you live in: West Coast versus East Coast, North versus South. So to to be specific, we you you know you, we need to know where that person is and then be able to uh, do a a pricing based on what their market uh, pricing levels are. Because you might have something as low as twenty dollars an hour in, in, in the South and as much as 45 or $50 in California or Colorado or Washington state. So it, there's a big, um, a big variable in there. So, but we are building, we are building that logic yeah. into our referral model. Yeah, we will because, have that on the site at, at some point. It's not right. quite finished yet. Mm-hmm. Programming is, we're yeah, Errol, programming. the cost for the consumer is free though. Like a, a family or the elder themselves, they don't have to pay to, to yes. put so, so they would be the, the idea would be to find out which home care companies here in California are, are offering your service. Would that be the best right. place to start? I mean, yeah, or call me directly and I'll be happy okay, to work sure. with you on that. Okay. I mean, okay. So we started out, uh, just to give you a little more about the history, we started out last year. We did a very controlled beta test to make sure and got a lot of uh, independent and franchise input, user inputs. Mm-hmm. And we released a 2.0 version earlier this year. And actually, we're going to do another 2.3 later this, this month. But we keep on updating and making it more feature uh, value there for the agencies and for the users, uh, the clients, and the caregivers. That's our ecosystem is the client, uh, agency, and care professionals, as we call them. Yeah. I'd be happy to spend any time and then run you through a demo if you'd like to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Happy to do that. Yeah. I mean, Errol, because part of what you're doing when you're working with families is identifying, I mean, they have to meet the the ADL requirements, right? And yeah. so, you know, idealistically, you could put every family through the process of right. submitting yeah. their information into right. Home Care Quote mm-hmm. and then yeah, generate I mean, that report. I mean, a lot of my conversations start with, well, mom was doing great until she had that fall. And yeah. then so we're talking about a family caregiver that has no education whatsoever and no knowledge whatsoever, you know, because, because I I remember when my parents were living, that was me. I had no, no knowledge whatsoever. Same thing. That went through the same thing. So um, it's, it it has a really, the byproducts of this across various levels of user uh, participation in it is pretty amazing. And uh, But it's, it's really rewarding when you hear that feedback from the clients that go through the experience that they, because they, because they get, they, they're not quite sure what they're going to get sometimes, but depending on who they call, right? So this creates that, what Sarah said a moment ago, kind of a structured professional. You're going to get a consistent message. You could have somebody that just started with your home, with a home care agency 
follow this script and the person would have a much better experience than they would otherwise have. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. really good. Yeah. 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 And, mm-hmm. and, and, and a lot of times, um, I think that that would be a good way to um, for them to, if they do start with a family caregiver to change, right. you know, to add, let's say. Well, so the, so the idea was, part of the strategy behind this was that if we were getting uh, more education to the clients and we were getting agencies properly paid for what they're doing, we could pay the caregivers what they're doing and based upon skills that they have, like specialty skills and so forth, and then make sure that there's a lesser re- uh, of a turnover in that work group because mm-hmm. we're trying to make sure they're around a little bit more longer. It, it creates a lot of disruption when they leave the uh, the uh, case management responsibilities that they're working on and uh, agencies have to kind of, you know, reintroduce a new person into that environment. You don't, change is not always good as it relates to that topic. Mm-hmm. So, Ideally, Errol, like every social worker at the VA that's dealing with um, an elder veteran or any case manager at a hospital, discharge planner at a SNF should be utilizing this tool, uh, not only because it would really be helpful in them when they are discharging and, and trying to help the family, right? But also if they're making a referral to home care, they could you know, provide this report to the home care, right? But every home care company, in my opinion, should be using this tool because it's it's systematic, it's professional, it's educational, you know? And there's no cost for the family to be Sarah, able to use this tool. Sarah, if, if you would want to schedule a future time, I know I want to chew up a lot of your yeah. but if you have a future interest, we'd be happy to do a demo for anybody who wants to participate. Definitely, definitely. Um, are there any other questions? I know so we did almost take up the two hours. So I do want one last call for questions. Otherwise, um, we will log off. Okay. Well, thank you so much, everyone. You will be getting the recording of this, and I'll make sure that you get all of the different articles and whatever else was talked about today. Thank okay. You. Sounds good. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.